Thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. And that gift, of course, is Emmanuel, God with us. Yeah, as we think about Christmas, a lot went into that first Christmas. Just probably like a lot goes into our Christmases as far as preparation of food, shopping, and, and uh, planning of worship, and planning of different events and parties and so on like that. And for the birth of Jesus to take place, a lot of things had to fall into place. Of course, a lot of them were prophesied in Scripture. And one of the things that happened is that God promised Abraham, God promised David that his seed would reign. Of course, it was talking about Jesus. They didn't understand everything at the time, but look forward to the time when Jesus would come and Jesus would die on the cross. I've always, when I thought about genealogies, I thought they can be a little bit boring, but there's some truths that we can learn from genealogies, and that's what we're going to try to do from Matthew chapter 1. Verses 1 through 17, if you will take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 1. It says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Focusing on two of his descendants that were very important. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron, Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Amenadab, Amenadab begot Nason, Nason begot Solomon, Solomon begot Boaz by Rahab, Boaz begot Obed by Ruth, Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king, David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah, Solomon begot Rehoboam, Rehoboam begot Abijah, Abijah begot Asa, Asa begot Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat begot Joram. And Joram begot Uzziah. Uzziah begot Jotham. Jotham begot Ahaz. And Ahaz begot Hezekiah. Hezekiah begot Manasseh. Manasseh begot Amon. And Amon begot Josiah. Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers about the time they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Shealtiel. And Shealtiel begot Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel begot Abiad. Abiad begot Eliakim. And Eliakim begot Azor. Azor begot Zadok. Zadok begot Achim. Achim begot Eliad. Eliad begot Eleazar. Eleazar begot Mathan. And Mathan begot Jacob. And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David till the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations. And then it gets into the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not easy to read genealogies. You ought to try it, read, read it out, some, out loud sometime. But there are some truths that we can learn. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look at this portion of Scripture, we pray that you will guide us and direct us. We pray that you will help us to understand truth from your word and be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're talking about gratitude in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. Gratitude for God's grace. And God's grace is seen in verses 1 through 17 in regard to the people who were chosen to be part of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. 
You know, sometimes we look at our lives and we think, how can I be used by God? I mean, I'm not that impressive. Why would God choose to use me? And, and that perhaps is a, a good question. Why would God choose to use you or use me? We're, we're weak. We're inadequate. We have our problems. We have our failures. We've sinned before. But the reality is that God chooses to use us even though we might be weak, though we might be inadequate, though we might have failed in the past. Just like he used the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1 to bring about the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. So if you're discouraged and you're thinking, well, God can't use me, don't be discouraged. God can indeed use you. He can use me. First of all, we see God's grace in, in the lives of four women. Did you notice that four women were mentioned in this portion of Scripture? First of all, in verse number three, Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. You can read the story in Genesis chapter 38. Basically, Tamar was married to one of Judah's sons. And then he died, married another one. He died, married another. It was a situation where none of them had children. And basically, um, when, when um, Tamar recognized that she was not going to have any children, uh, she acted like a prostitute. And Judah went into her, and they had a kid. So, so that's basically the story of Terah. You can get into it more. Just read Genesis chapter 38. But that was not necessarily a pretty picture in the life of Israel. That was not a, a, um, an example that we need to follow. And yet Tamar was mentioned in this line. And of course Judah was as well. So, so we, we think about this. We need to recognize that even though mistakes have been made in the past... God can still use us. Wouldn't you agree with that? Let's move on to the second woman, Rahab, verse number 5. Solomon begot Boaz by Rahab. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth and so on. So Rahab uh, is, is the one that is made famous by Jericho. There were some spies that went into Jericho, and they were spying out the land. They, they were going to, to basically report to Joshua tell him what was going on, and, and Joshua and, and the children of Israel were going to attack Jericho. Well, Rahab was a harlot, and she hid the men. And they, of course, went back and reported to Joshua after a little bit of, of intrigue and so on. When, when Israel came and attacked Jericho and the wall fell down flat, Rahab's house was spared, and Rahab's life and those of her, her relatives were spared. And in fact, when you think about Rahab... In Hebrews chapter 11 and verse number 31, the chapter that talks about the heroes of the faith, it mentions Rahab and talks about the fact that she had faith, she hid the spies. But Rahab was a harlot, and she is mentioned in Matthew chapter 1. Sometimes we look at our backgrounds, and we think, God can't use me because of my background. But that's not the case. God can show grace, and he can use us even in spite of our background. The next one, same verse, is Ruth. Verse number five. Solomon begot Boaz by Rahab. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Now, Ruth was an exemplary lady. I mean, if you look at the life of Ruth, uh, she did everything right. I mean, she was faithful to her mother-in-law, Naomi. She worked hard. Uh, she had a good attitude. Uh, everything was good, except for one thing. She was a Moabitess. 
he was from a different land. And generally speaking, the Israelites and foreign people, they, they weren't supposed to mix. They weren't supposed to intermarry, primarily because of the fact that, that the Israelites had the God of Israel as their God. These other nations had other gods. But Ruth, even though she was a Moabitess, she was chosen to be in the line of Jesus Christ. And it's true that when she left Moab, she said to Naomi, let your God be my God. She turned to God. Uh, so as, as we look at this next one, Ruth was a foreigner, and yet she was included in this genealogy. One more woman, her name's not even mentioned. Verse number six, Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. You can read that story in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Uh, the story of David, instead of being out fighting like he was supposed to be, was at the palace. He looked and saw Bathsheba bathing. He decided that he wanted her and he had sex with her and she became pregnant. The problem was that she was married to Uriah. And uh, as, as a result of, of what transpired, Uriah was killed in battle and he, he took Bathsheba to be his wife. The first baby died, but the Another baby, Solomon, was born, and of course Solomon became the next king. Again, there were some issues that took place in that particular situation. There were some mistakes that were made, and yet God used Bathsheba. She was in the line of Jesus Christ. God's grace is seen in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. Well, there are four women there were many men that needed God's grace. And I'm just going to mention three of them. One was Manasseh, verse number 10. Hezekiah begat Manasseh, Manasseh begat Ammon, and so on. Manasseh, if you look at 2 Kings chapter 21, Manasseh was probably the most wicked king of all of the Israelite kings. He was not very impressive. In fact, if, if you want to, you can turn to, to first Samuel, excuse me, Second Samuel chapter 21, excuse me, Second Kings 21, and, and, and let's look at a little bit of detail. Sometimes we think, well, God can't use me because I've messed up in the past. And it is true that Manasseh, toward the end of his life, did seem to repent. But he started reigning when he was 12 years old, Second Kings 21.1. He reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. Verse number 2, he did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah his father had destroyed. He raised up altars for Baal and made a wooden image as Ahab king of Israel had done. And he worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. He also built altars in the house of the Lord of which the Lord had said, in Jerusalem I will put my name. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he made his son pass through the fire. That's called child sacrifice. Practiced soothsaying, used witchcraft, consulted spiritists and mediums. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. He even set a carved image of Asherah that he had made in the house of the 
in the house of which the Lord had said to David and to Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name. Doesn't sound too impressive, does he? But for some reason, by God's grace, he was still in the line of Jesus. You know, if, if we look at, at our background, sometimes we think, why would God use me? I might not have done all those bad things, but I hadn't done that great either. And I'm not that impressive. But God chose to use Manasseh in that particular way. Solomon is another one. Look at verse number 7. We're back in Matthew chapter 1. Solomon begat Rehoboam. Well, Solomon was the wisest person who ever lived, at least for a while. But as he grew older, he became very foolish. We find out about this in 1 Kings chapter 11. So if you'll take your Bibles, if you want to, turn to 1 Kings chapter 11. And we'll see how Solomon, who was supposedly the wisest man who ever lived, uh, did some dumb things. 1 Samuel 11 Verse number one, King Solomon loved many foreign women, as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonites, and Hittites, from the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, you shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. And he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. You know, I wonder if Solomon thought to himself, I'm really wise. I'm the wisest man who's ever lived. I can handle it. I can handle the temptation that comes my way. I'm not going to turn aside from God. He should have listened to God's word. Verse number four, it was so when Solomon was old, that his wives turned his heart after other gods. And his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord, and he did not fully follow the Lord, as did his father David. Then Solomon built a high place for Shemos in the, the abomination of Moab, on the hill that is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the abomination of the people of Ammon. And he did likewise for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. So the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned from the Lord, God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice, and so on, so on. Goes, on, goes ahead and talks about the consequences, the fact that God would not take away the kingdom in his days, but that God would split the kingdom in the future, and that's exactly what happened with his son Rehoboam. His son ended up being the reigner in, in regard to Judah and Benjamin, but the ten tribes went to Jeroboam. So even Solomon, the wisest man in the world, had some issues, but God chose to use him. Now, David was a man after God's own heart, but did David have his issues? We've already looked in first, Second Samuel chapter 11. In your notes it says Second Samuel 21. It's actually Second Samuel 11. It's the same story that we heard a few minutes ago. He looked upon Bathsheba, committed adultery with her in order to hide it. He had Uriah killed in battle. So David was an adulterer. David was a murderer. 
But later on it talks about the fact that David was a man after God's own heart. He was an individual who was very flawed. And yet God used him in a significant way. In fact, if you look at Psalms, he wrote so many of the Psalms even though he had some issues. My point is not that we can just go out and live any way we want to and God will use him. That's, that's certainly not what I am trying to communicate. And in fact, we're talking, about, we're talking about gratitude for God's grace today. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to be talking about godliness. And it's important for us to be godly. It's important for us to, to learn God's word and obey God's word. But if we've made mistakes in the past, if we are imperfect, which all of us are, if we are inadequate, which all of us are, then God can still use us by his grace. Aren't you grateful for that? No matter who you are, if you present yourselves to God, trust Christ as Savior and present yourself to God as a living sacrifice, he can take you and he can use you to accomplish what he wants to accomplish by his grace. And we need to be grateful for God's grace. First of all, be grateful for God's saving grace. If you will take your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Very familiar portion of scripture. Ephesians chapter 2 starts off talking about how we're dead in our trespasses and sins. And then it says this in verse number 4. But God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in trespasses made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So even though we were dead in our trespasses and sins, even though we had our issues, even though we were still sinners, God commended his love toward us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Then the familiar two verses, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, lest any man should boast. We're saved by God's grace. We're not saved because we deserve it. We don't get to heaven by doing good works. We don't get to heaven by going to church. We don't get to heaven by being a deacon or teaching Sunday school or being kind to one another. The only way we can get to heaven is by faith in Jesus Christ who died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. So as we think about God's grace and we express our gratitude to God, it's first and foremost for saving grace, the fact that even though we're sinners and we deserve to die and go to hell, God loved us so much he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins so we can go to heaven if we believe in him, if we have faith in him. Aren't you grateful for, for God's saving grace? And the fact that because of what he did on the cross, we have the assurance of everlasting life. But Christianity is not just a ticket to heaven. Not only do we see God's saving grace, we also see God's sanctifying grace. It's only by God's grace that we can live the Christian life. Romans chapter 5 talks about that. You might want to turn there for just a minute. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 starts off talking about justification and then it talks about sanctification Romans 5 1 therefore having been justified by faith we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ 
That's justification. And because of our faith in Jesus Christ, no longer are we at enmity with God. No longer are we separated from God, but we have peace with God. But it goes on to say, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand in rejoice and hope of the glory of God. From other portions of Scripture, especially 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse number 18, what happens when we trust Jesus Christ as Savior, God shows us His grace, we spend time with Jesus Christ, we become a little bit more like Him. And a little bit more like Him, a little bit more like Him, we reflect His glory little by little, more and more, if we're growing in our relationship with Jesus Christ. If we appropriate God's grace then we are going to be more and more sanctified, more and more holy, more and more set apart to him. I think the problem with some of us is that we trusted Christ a long time ago, but we really haven't grown. We really haven't appropriated or made our own God's grace because through God's grace, we can be sanctified. We can call it sanctifying grace. We can't live the Christian life in our own strength. We can only do it through God's help. Philippians 2.13, God is the one who works in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And then we also can look at at, uh, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Or John 15.5, when we abide in Christ we'll bear much fruit, but Jesus said without me you can do nothing. It's only by God's grace that we can be saved. And it's only by God's grace that we can live the Christian life that we can be sanctified. So as we think about gratitude for God's grace, it's for his saving grace, it's for a sanctifying grace, but it's also for his serving grace. God not only wants us to live for him as far as living a holy life, he wants us to serve him as well. In fact, that's his plan. He's He says in Galatians chapter 5, verse number 13, through love serve one another. John chapter 13, Jesus washed the feet of the disciples and he said to them, you need to do the same thing. Follow my example and serve one another. So it's important for us to recognize that God gives us serving grace. Now sometimes we look at our lives and, and we think, well, man, if I had serving grace then I'd be sharp, I could memorize scripture, I could I could have great oratory and and I always know what to say I'd be really smart but the reality is that God is more concerned with us depending on him so that he can work his perfect will in our lives take your Bibles turn to 2nd Corinthians chapter 12 2nd Corinthians chapter 12 Paul had a thorn in the flesh we don't know exactly what it was Because I think if we knew what it was, we'd say, well, my thorn in the flesh is worse than his. But as, as a result of the revelations which he had received, he received a thorn in the flesh so he would not be exalted. He prayed that it might be taken away. And this is what God said to him. My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. You know, in this portion of Scripture, we first of all see Paul's problem. The problem was, from his perspective, he had a thorn in the flesh and he did not like it. How many of you have problems? Raise your hand if you have problems. Do you like your problems? Most of us, I mean, just logical. If if you're rational, you don't normally like your problems. And Paul didn't like his thorn in the flesh. He prayed that it might be taken away. But we see here God's promise. 
And God's promise was, my grace is sufficient for you. Is that true for us as well? Can we depend on God's grace to be sufficient for us? Because his strength is made perfect in our weakness. Well, what, what I am is impressed by is the reaction of Paul, Paul's priorities. Notice what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse number 9. After my grace is sufficient for you, my strength is made perfect in weakness. Paul said, therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and in reproaches and needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul's priority was not to be comfortable. That's a good thing because he sure was not comfortable. He went through a lot in his life. And, and, and when he thought about the thorn in the flesh, when he thought about suffering for Jesus Christ, his attitude was, that's not the big deal. The big deal is that God uses me to accomplish his purpose. It's called a hierarchy of values. More important to him than comfort was God using him. The power of Christ resting upon him. You know, we probably, should need, we, we probably need to ask ourselves the same question. What's important to me? Is, is comfort more important, getting what I want, enjoying life? Or is it more important that the power of Christ rests upon us, that God uses us to accomplish what he wants to in our lives? God makes available to us serving grace. In other words, he enables us to serve effectively as we trust him and appropriate his grace. In fact, 2 Corinthians 9, 8 talks about that. It talks about the fact that God is able to make all grace abound toward us, that we having all sufficiency in all things may abound to every good work. The primary context there is, is, is money. It's giving. God blessed the Corinthians so that they could be a blessing to others. But I think it applies to every area of life and service. God gives us the talents that we need, the treasures that we need, the time that we need to make a difference for him by his grace, if we appropriate his grace. We need to be grateful for God's serving grace. There's one more. God's saving grace, God's sanctifying grace, God's serving grace. And then the next one is about to come up on the screen. It is God's sustaining grace. Aren't you glad that God's grace is there when we go through tough times? I'm thinking about Peggy Surratt right now. Uh, she's going through a tough time. Rod's been in the hospital the last month and a half or even more. And she's been a trooper. She's been by his side, I think, the whole time or almost the entire time. And God has given her what she has needed. And now Rob last night passed away. Will God continue to sustain her as she trusts in him? That doesn't mean it's easy. When we go through difficulties, when our circumstances are hard, it doesn't mean that, that we go through, that it's, that it's the easy thing to go through, that, that we don't struggle some. But the reality is that no matter what we're going through, God's grace is sufficient and he helps us. My mind goes to, to Hebrews chapter 4. Verses 15 and 16. Verse number 15 talks about the fact that we have a high priest, Jesus, who understands what we are going through. And then there's this exhortation. It says, therefore, let us come boldly before the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy 
and find grace to help in time of need. In other words, when we go through difficult circumstances and we come to God in prayer, He gives us the mercy and the grace that we need in time of need. The mercy is God basically not giving us what we deserve because all of us deserve judgment. And His grace is giving us what we don't deserve. It's showing us unmerited favor in helping us in the midst of difficulty. God's grace is with us when we go through hard times. He will never leave us nor forsake us. And can't we cast all our cares on him because he cares for us? You know, as we look at Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, it's obvious that God showed grace to these people and included them, though they were very imperfect, in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. It's also clear as we look at Scripture that God has been gracious to us, and we should be grateful for, for his graciousness, for his grace. Uh, if we know Jesus Christ is Savior, he has shown us saving grace. Of course, we have to choose. We have to trust Christ, uh, recognizing our sin and relying on him. He, he again, uh, has shown us sanctifying grace. By God's grace, we can live the Christian life. We can be victorious. Serving grace, his grace is sufficient. His power is made perfect in our weakness. So we can depend on him to use us to accomplish his purposes for his honor and glory. In sustaining grace, when we go through tough times, God is with us. He shows us grace to help in time of need. I guess my question is twofold. Number one, are you on a regular basis experiencing God's grace? Do you know Jesus Christ is your Savior? Are you living for him? Are you serving him? And are you depending on him in the midst of difficult times? Are you appropriating God's grace in your life? Then number two, are you grateful for the grace that God has shown to you? During this Christmas season, we, we ought to be showing our gratitude to God. Paul put it like this, thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift, his indescribable gift. And that gift, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ, who came as a baby, who lived, who died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins so that we can have everlasting life if we believe on him. What do we need to do? Make sure that we, that we believe on him, that we have trusted Jesus as our Savior. Not just that we know him intellectually or know about him, but that we have invited him personally to save us from our sins and to give us everlasting life. We need to, to make sure that we are saved, but then we need to depend on God for his grace as we seek to live for him, as we seek to serve him, and as we face the challenges that life brings our way. Aren't you grateful for God's grace? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before you, we are grateful. You have blessed us in so many ways, especially in sending your son, the Lord Jesus, so that we can have everlasting life. But more than that, you help us live for you. You help us serve you. You help us as we go through difficulties in life. And Lord, as we think about your mercy and as we think about your grace, we are indeed thankful. Lord, I pray that that attitude of gratitude will be obvious in our lives in days to come for your honor and for your glory. And I pray, Lord, that you will continue to show us the grace that we need so that we can be what you want us to be and do what you want us to do. Again, for your glory. All this we pray in Jesus' name.